You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Minds at blood destruction, sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on... 3cr.org.au. The program is also podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And I'm Jeff Toscano. Look, uh, as you know, uh, most of Victoria is in lockdown. Melbourne Metropolitan Region, the Mitchell Show, about 5 million people are in lockdown. I'm actually not able to broadcast from Community Radio 3CR. I'm broadcasting from outside the studio. I am broadcasting live. I like to broadcast live because you can give an up-to-date analysis of what's happening in the, in the real world, not the uh, virtual world. And uh, if we have any technical issues, we have technical issues. Hopefully, we had a few last week. Hopefully, we've ironed out some of those technical issues. I'd also like to thank the people at uh, 3CR and Community Radio Network for ensuring programs like the Anarchist World this week, which give a different perspective uh, heard on air, regularly during this uh, particularly difficult time. I'd like to start off with the COVID-19 update, because I think a lot of people are a bit confused about what's happening. And I think what the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted is that society is not devoid from the uh, real world. And what happens in society, to a large degree, determines how the infection uh, progresses in the community. Now, we all know that currently the Victorian government is beginning a uh, investigation into the reasons the COVID-19 uh, virus uh, exploded out of the hotels that were being used to quarantine people who are coming back from overseas. And uh, we have seen the devastating consequences of, when, of uh, what happens when these quarantine uh, regulations are not followed. And a lot of people like to point the finger at individuals or they like to point the finger at a particular government department. But I want to look at this as a wider issue because the same issue we are now seeing in nursing homes in the city of Melbourne, where in one nursing home there are 51 residents with COVID-19. It's quite likely that about a third of those residents will die in the next few weeks. Um, Most of them are elderly and have got... uh, Well, they're all elderly and they've all got... uh, multiple uh, medical issues. But the dilemma is, why is this happening? Why does it happen in meatworks? Why is it happening in nursing homes? Why did it happen uh, during the quarantine of um, overseas travellers in Melbourne? And there's one 
common denominator, one common denominator, and that's outsourcing, casualization. Outsourcing and casualization have been the vectors by which the COVID-19 virus has been able to gain a, quite a strong uh, hold in the Melbourne community. It's very simple. You'll find that uh, many areas of activity in Australia are now casualised. Over 35% of Australian workers have no entitlements whatsoever because of the nature of the work they are doing. Many other aspects of uh, work have been changed radically during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation era in order to maximise profits and reduce services to the community. Outsourcing is not just a private enterprise problem, it is a government problem because during this privatisation epidemic, and it has been an epidemic over the last 40 years, just as bad as COVID-19, if not worse in any regard, during this privatisation epidemic, what we have seen is people who had permanent, full-time, secure employment being pushed into insecure, casual, mobile employment in order to maximise profits for uh, various corporations. And let's not forget that most of the service industries we have in this country are dominated by three or four large corporations, whether whether it's childcare, whether it's aged care, whatever it is, you'll find there are three or four large corporations dominating economic activity in this country in every sector. I mean, we've seen the banalisation of the hardware industry where local hardware shops have closed because they're able to compete with the, uh, the bunnings of the world. So we see this same problem in aged care. When aged care was privatised uh, many, many years ago, the private sector, the corporations that now dominate the aged care sector, asked for two things. They asked that there be no ratios regarding residents and carers and that skilled nursing staff were uh, basically moved from the sector in order to maximise profits. And we are now seeing what happens when that ha when that occurs. One, the care itself has been under investigation through a Royal Commission into Aged Care, and although the report hasn't uh, been released yet, it's obvious that there are many, 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 many deficiencies in the aged care sector. And those deficiencies are directly related to the privatisation of the aged care sector and the corporatisation of the aged care sector, where we've seen three or four large corporations now dominate the aged care sector, getting their money from uh, government to a large, significant degree, as well as the uh, residents. So what does it mean? What does it mean in practical terms? What it means in practical terms is the same people are not providing the service at the same institution. What it means is that you have labour hire companies which now dominate uh, the labour market. They have banks of workers on tap, usually poorly paid, casual workers with minimal entitlements who are moved from nursing home to nursing home, security job to security job. And many of these people are here on short-term visas because the wages are so low, it is very hard to attract people into these uh, 
lowly paid jobs. So what we saw in the aged care sector in Melbourne is casual staff who've got no protections against, uh, have no sick pay, have minimal entitlements, moving from sector to sector to nursing home to nursing home to nursing home in order to make up shifts in order to pay their bills. It's that simple. So we have a perfect vector for the transmission of COVID-19 from one nursing home to the next nursing home to the next nursing home. We saw this with the uh, with the so-called security companies, which provided security for the hotels which were quarantined overseas travellers who were coming to Melbourne. We saw how these organisations work. I get a phone call. I'm offered $50 an hour to provide security. I phone up my mate Jim and I'm offering $30 an hour to provide security. He then puts on a he then puts out the word. He tells people to bring their own sanitizer, their own masks, their own gloves. Doesn't give them any training. Puts them there, and uh, bingo, everybody's happy. But uh, the precautions that are necessary are not taken. So the, the major, a significant reason it's becoming so hard to contain COVID-19 when it gets a foothold in the community is the fact that we have a casualised, mobilised, poorly paid uh, work uh, community which uh, if they get a little bit sick, they still go to work because there's no sick pay. If uh, if they need to pay their bills, they move from place to place. And we see this not just in the nursing home sector, we also see this in the personal care sector. With the National Disability Insurance Scheme, we are seeing more and more people now involved in the uh, personal care sector, and most of these workers are casual workers, uh, they've paid minimum rates. They move from client to client to client to client. And so, again, you have a perfect uh, petri dish via which to grow COVID-19 as people move from person to person, facility to facility. So to a significant degree, it's becoming increasingly difficult to contain COVID-19 in such a setting, uh, instead of having permanent staff providing services to the same people, where it's a cleaner in an institution, and again, you've got cleaning, which is again, it's been casualised. Whether you've got permanent staff or casual staff makes a huge difference. Whether you've got staff who have entitlements who are able to take sick leave and be paid for taking sick leave, or you have casual staff that have no sick leave, is, uh, again, is, is exceptionally important. So casualisation, casualisation and the fact that people are now in short-term contracts with no rights uh, has highlighted how difficult it is to treat or to spread, uh, to stop the spread of COVID-19 in our urban community. Exceptionally difficult. And it's becoming more and more difficult. So unless things are done to actually address this now, not tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or in 100 years' time, but now, 
by providing people with uh, paid leave, not just if they uh, test positive for COVID-19, but if they have symptoms which they shouldn't go to work with. And uh, we should also have a situation where we need to stop outsourcing. We need to have permanent staff in these institutions because permanent staff not only are able to provide a standard of care which is necessary, they can also provide the interaction which is necessary in many of these institutions. So I've been involved in the healthcare industry now for almost 43 years. I've been involved in looking after people with severe physical disabilities now for almost 40 years. And I can assure you it's that one-to-one contact, that long-term contact, which makes a difference to people in that situation. And one of the things that they hate the most is the fact that the turnover of staff and the inability to actually get permanent staff to provide services for them. And with the introduction of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, I think it's very important for us to consider that. Listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. This program is podcast. You'll be able to access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Isn't it ironic? I remember about 18 months ago, I was sitting on the steps of Parliament House doing a uh, 10-day protest, 24-hour, 10-day 24-hour-a-day, 10-day protest regarding the lack of public housing before the last uh, Victorian state election. I think it was uh, November 2018, if I remember correctly. And one of the PSOs who we developed a relationship with came down and said, look, uh, one of your uh, people is uh, wearing a mask. and uh, If they don't take the mask off, uh, we're going to arrest them. But uh, we're going to give you a bit of warning so they can actually just walk away. And uh, the person walked away, took off her mask and came back later on. Uh, I just find it ironical now that uh, you get fined for not wearing a mask from, from the uh, 23rd of May, quite, 23rd of July. It's quite extraordinary. It's uh, Look, I've got nothing against wearing a mask. I think uh, we should have been wearing masks a long time ago. Uh, I um, started wearing a mask in March at the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 outbreak. And the main reason I was wearing a mask, especially in a work situation, is that coronavirus is a respiratory virus. It is part of, part of that. It's a respiratory virus. It's not just transmitted by, uh, you know, by touching our nose and our eyes and our, thro- you know, and our mouth. It's transmitted through... Uh, droplets and uh, more, more importantly through uh, more than droplets. So it is a respiratory infection. You would think that uh, wearing a mask would be one mechanism of which, by which you protect yourself and more importantly you protect the people around you. So if you've got two lines about wearing a mask, I mean it's a small price to pay um, to try to hold this uh, COVID-19 epidemic, especially in Melbourne currently and uh, Mitchell Shire and parts of New South Wales. And if we're not careful, you could see it back in the rest of Australia. So I just thought it was ironic that Victoria was the only state which actually passed legislation to ban people from wearing masks in public. 
and now they've passed legislation to make it mandatory to wear a mask. I'm sure a lot of activists listening to this program, especially Victorian activists, will be having a bit of a chuckle to themselves as the D-Day approaches about uh, the mandatory wearing of masks in public in uh, Melbourne metropolitan region, the Mitchell Shire. Now let's move on. Look, I was listening to an interesting interview uh, a few hours, uh, I think it was yesterday, uh, which raised a lot of important points to me, which you know, I'd like to share with listeners to the Anarchist World this week. It was an interview about shattered Anzacs. And I was listening to a mother of an Afghan soldier who returned from the Afghan war and uh, committed suicide. And it was all known about shattered Anzacs. In World War One. they were called, you know, it was called shell shock. We've all known about post-traumatic uh, stress disorder in uh, returned service men and women. That's been a constant feature of wars since time immemorial because human beings are not programmed to kill on order. I mean, we may kill in a fight, we may kill because of jealousy, we may kill because, you know, we find ourselves in a tight situation and the list goes on and on. But we're not programmed biologically to kill on command. And the whole purpose of being part of the armed forces is to train people so they can kill on command. They can kill on command. Now, it doesn't matter how we try to dress it up, and it's quite interesting to see the latest uh, advertisements by the federal government to get more people to join the Australian armed forces, especially in the time of uh, increasing unemployment. About It's all about developing themselves and Etc. Etc. There are leaders, especially for frontline troops, is it's about killing on command. It's about breaking down a human training. is about breaking down a human being, then building up into a machine which will kill on command. And considering all the uh, leaks that are occurring from the special investigation into what seem to be quite extraordinary things that happened in Afghanistan, uh, uh, crimes which were conducted by Australian troops during their uh, time in that province. It's, uh, it was, I was fascinated to listen to this woman who'd lost her son uh, through suicide. And I remembered, I mean, a lot of listeners to the 3CR station in Melbourne would have known a woman called Elma Morton who was there for ages and ages. And, uh, and uh, I did an obituary for her, which appeared in the age. And one of her most enduring memories, and this was a woman who was born in 19... was born in 1916, 1914. It was uh, in the 1920s when she was a young girl. Her father would wake up in the middle of the night, grab a gun, herd all the children and his wife into the bedroom and sit outside with the gun across his knees, waiting for the Huns. This is a man in... Uh, suburban Melbourne, waiting for the hum. And so shattered Anzacs are part and parcel of our story. And I was listening to this woman and she said she's in negotiations with the Australian War Memorial and the group that she's involved in to set up a grieving space outside the... in the gardens of the Australian War Memorial a grieving space where family members of people who've lost uh, people in war could actually go 
and reflect and sit and think in a garden setting about the casualties of war, about those who really suffer in war, you know, beyond the nationalist rhetoric, beyond the uh, breast-beating. And considering, and I thought, well, this is a very good idea, exceptionally good idea, do it outside the war memorial in the garden so it's connected to it. It's an open space. And then it dawned on me that although she'd been given permission, the group had been given permission to actually do something like this in the garden, set up a grieving space, the federal government and the Australian War Memorial, which has just received $500 million, which is a half a billion dollars for renovation by the federal government, that's $500 million for renovations, is not providing one cent for the grieving space. They want this mother, this grieving family and their supporters to raise the money publicly. How extraordinary. How extraordinary. A small space for people to grieve. People who've lost people in conflict over generations. Brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, uncles, aunts, cousins. Most goes on and on. And the federal government is not willing to allocate two or three million dollars to set up such a space in the newly renovated Australian War Memorial, while well, it's quite happy to use $500 million to expand the, uh, the, the War Memorial in Canberra. Quite an extraordinary situation. I think the reason I found this interview quite uh, heartbreaking was not the fact of this woman and her family's personal grief. We've all got periods of personal grief. But the fact that as a society, we are not willing to actually support the concept of peace. That as a society, we were not willing to actually fund a small grieving space for people in the gardens surrounding the Australian War Memorial or, or the re revamped Australian War Memorial. I think it highlights the type of society we are and with this type of society we've become. Let's move on. Now, if I told you there was a China, there were three Chinese aircraft carriers, a number of destroyers conducting military exercises between Australia and New Zealand, you would be livid. Well, not all of us. You would be livid. The Fox News, the Murdochs of the world, social media, the legacy media, politicians of all various hues would be would be would be aghast. They would be aghast at the fact that the Chinese government is conducting military exercises in open waters outside Australia. Well, guess what's happening, boys and girls, as we speak? Australia has joined the United States in naval exercises 
in the South China Sea. And uh, we're all happy about this, aren't we? You know, we need the new enemy, especially in a period where there's so much internal issues. You need, you need an external enemy. We've got the Chinese now. We've got the Chinese uh, government. And so we, during the middle of a COVID-19 crisis, we are conducting military exercises in the United States in the South China Sea. Extraordinary, isn't it? And uh, we think it's a great thing. I'm not saying you think it's a great thing or I think it's a great thing, but our government is, thinks it's the thing that we should do. Today in 2003, quite extraordinary when you think about it. Shattered Anzacs, military exercise in the South China Sea, anti-Chinese rhetoric uh, getting bigger and bigger. Uh, you can see that uh, distraction time has come. All right, let's move on to something a little bit more uh, solid. Blunt incentives to work. You like that word? Blunt incentives to work. Now, you may have noticed that in the last 24 hours, the uh, federal government has made some uh, changes to JobKeeper and JobSeeker. And uh, these changes can be quite uh, significant to people's lives, and especially to... Uh, job seekers and all those job keepers who will lose their income and join the uh, job seeker queues in the next uh, six months or so. And they're quite significant. It's not just the drop in the COVID-19 uh, extra payment, which has dropped from $550 a fortnight to $275 a fortnight, uh, which most likely will be reviewed at the end of December, which may disappear at the end of December. There's no increase in the uh, current... Uh, uh, unemployment benefits. But it's the reintroduction of the cruel practices pre-COVID-19, cruel practices of mutual, so-called mutual obligation of people who are receiving uh, social security benefits, mutual obligation, interviews, going to useless training exercises for the sake of making, you know, profits for uh, a few corporations and a few religious-based organisations running the, uh, you know, the Centrelink uh, program, and the list goes on and on. And it was quite interesting to see that uh, it's not just about decreasing money, it's about in a period of increasing unemployment, actually forcing people to jump hoops in order to create blunt incentives to work. In other words, we're going to make life so difficult for you. There's going to be so much paperwork. There's going to be so many hoops to jump through, so many interviews, so many people to speak to, so many jobs to apply to that you're going to give up your unemployment benefits and you're going to go back into that workforce and take up some poorly paid, insecure, casual work. That's what it's about. But there's a difference this time. It's not just a minority of people. It's a significant proportion of the Australian population. Irrespective of their figures, at least 20% of the Australian population is currently not working or working insufficient hours. Some people say it's 25%. 
And I can assure you, as JobKeeper and JobSeeker kind of peters out over the next six months, especially if COVID-19 isn't uh, suppressed in the community, that the queues, the unemployment queues, the job seeker queues will lengthen and lengthen and lengthen and the number of jobs which will be available will decrease. And I think what this highlights is the divergence of opinion between people like you and me and current governments and oppositions and most of the general community. I mean, we live in a different age. We live in an age of increasing artificial intelligence, increasing mechanisation and increasing population growth. We have now reached an age where we don't need everybody in the community to work in order for a community to survive and prosper. Not just survive, but survive and prosper. But we have a 19th or a 17th century, I should say, concepts as far as work is concerned. The only way to get ahead in a capitalist society, a society based on private investment for private profit, is by holding a job, by having your labour exploited by somebody else. Now, I don't know why people find it so hard to accept the idea of a universal basic income. Because for generations, for centuries, we have had a universal basic income for the investment classes. They don't need to work. They survive through the profits which come out of their investments. I mean, they're used to a universal basic income, which is based (laughs) on your misfortune. They're used to that. That's what the investment class is about. That's what's the difference between a lady and a gentleman and you, because the traditional definition of a lady and a gentleman was somebody who didn't have to use their hand to earn an income. The rest of us, we had to use our hands. We were just people or scum. They were ladies and gentlemen. They didn't have to dirty their hands or even use their hands to derive an income. They derived an income because they were born on the right side of the blanket or because of the the investments that their families had, okay? So this concept of universal basic income is nothing new. The difference is I'm talking about a universal basic income for everybody in the community. And then we we would be in a situation to weather crises, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's uh, increasing mechanisation, artificial intelligence, whether we're involved in some type of uh, conflict with some other nation state, no, this goes on and on, whether it's a bushfire crisis. If you can break the nexus between employment and survival, you create a different type of society. Now, currently, there is a huge uh, conflict in the community regarding increasing CO2 emissions. Now, most people with not with a brain accept there are increasing CO2 emissions and most people accept that it is due to human activity. Not everybody, but most people. And obviously, you never get 100% agreement on anything, but most people accept it. But the dilemma is that a lot of people's jobs are tied 
create increasing CO2 emissions and they've been fighting tooth and nail to maintain their jobs, which makes sense because if they lose their job, they can't pay their rent, they can't educate their kids, they can't pay their mortgage and the list goes on and on because the difference between having a reasonable life and uh, find yourself in difficult circumstances in a capitalist society, which is based on wage slavery, it's very simple. It's six weeks' wages. You don't get six weeks' wages, you're in a pickle. That's why we've got JobKeeper currently, in order to keep the so-called economy ticking over. So it's time that we started thinking about a universal basic income as a universal panacea for times the people because if you're not going to need people to work in order for society to function what's the point of having cruel uh, jumping through the hoop exercise with people who can't get a job there's no point whatsoever and what's the point of uh, ensuring that their children and their children continue to live in poverty have to put up with all the issues which are related to not actually having enough uh, income to uh, provide for your basic needs. Now, most people throw up their hands in horror and say, a universal basic income? You're kidding. We could never fund that. We could never fund that. Well, I agree. We can't fund a universal basic income if we continue to walk along the pathway of creating profits for investors. We can't fund a universal basic income if we continue to pass legislation that uh, protects the investment class, that stops them from paying taxes. We can't. I agree. If we look at society as it is, we can't. Now, I don't think we need a revolution to introduce a universal basic income. But I do think we need some radical changes. And these radical changes are based on the idea that everybody in this society who makes a buck should pay taxes, not just wage earners. Currently, almost 70% of all taxation revenue comes from pay-as-you-earn taxpayers. So how do you fund the universal basic income without revolutionary change. It's simple. There are three things we can do tomorrow with a simple vote in Parliament. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to be easy, and it's not going to just be the parliamentarians who are going to vote about it. It's about pressure from you and me and organisations in this country that are willing to raise the issue of a universal basic income and look at mechanisms by which to actually pay for a universal basic income. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a long struggle. But it's something that we need to adopt in order to ensure that in an age of artificial intelligence and increasing mechanisation and increasing population growth, where we don't need everybody to work in order for society to function and prosper, we need to look at different ways of financing a universal basic income. And I've spoken about this ad nauseum, you know, ad nauseum. And a few things we can, three things we can do which would fund a universal basic income for everybody. 
and I'll talk about this. In, you know, the three things is one, a one percent stock market turnover tax. Every time a tax or share is bought or sold, one percent goes straight to the treasury. Everything is mechanised in the Australian Stock Exchange. It's all computerised. It, you know, it'd be very simple just to transfer one percent of every transaction to the Federal Treasury. You could raise anywhere between forty to seventy billion dollars a year, depending on how active the stock market is in a particular year. Another way of uh, looking at the question of a universal basis. Uh, Funding a universal basic income is financial transaction tax. 1% tax on every financial transaction. You could raise at least 150 to $200 billion a year. And the third way, which is the most difficult way because it will be the most resistant, is the nationalisation of our resources. The nationalisation of the resources that are under the ground. Australia is an exceptionally rich country as far as resources are concerned. We have a miserable 25 million people, not 250 million or 2.5 billion people living in Australia. 25 million people living in a resource-rich continent. We have uranium, coal, bauxite, gas, diamonds, rare earth. Lithium, I think 90% of the lithium supply, which is going to be extraordinarily um, uh, resourceful in an era of, uh, you know, of uh, batteries, and all this goes on and on. There are many things. Why should we give away for a peppercorn rent and a minimal taxation revenue the resources we have and see the creation of billionaires and see uh, major shareholders across the world making extraordinary sums of money while we can't even fund basic resources? Why should we have 700,000 children currently living in poverty and maybe a million by the end of the year? Why should we have people living on $40 a day on unemployment benefits? Why should we have kids not actually being able to go on school excursions because their parents can't pay for it. The list goes on and on and on. Why should we have a society where the federal government gives more to the private school sector, which educates about 26% of the ch children of this country and uh, doesn't give as much to the public school sector, which educates almost over 70% of the children in this country? And the list goes on and on. Why should we give our resources away to large corporations for the, uh, you know, for, you know, peppercorn royalties. Why shouldn't this nation's First Nations people actually share in that bounty? And all this goes on and on. So there are different ways we, we can actually do things. But it does mean struggle and it does mean debate and it does mean us getting involved as individuals. I know it's getting more and more difficult to get involved, especially in uh, Victoria currently, uh, but it's a little bit easier in other parts of Australia to which this program is broadcast. If there is one time that we need an organisation, a political party, on the federal sphere and possibly state spheres, that is raising these questions, now is the time. As you've heard me say over the last few years, I've been talking about public interest before corporate interests, uh, 
um, the registered officer of public interest before corporate interest. And uh, we're trying to get 550 members on the Australian electoral roll in order to register as a political party for the next uh, federal election and possibly some state elections. Currently, we have 425 members on the electoral roll. We need another 125, which isn't a large number to get. So if you've been a regular listener to the Anarchist World this week for some time and you've been thinking about joining uh, us, now's the time. Because the next six months are going to be crucial, exceptionally important. Because this government is going, and the opposition are going to have policies which basically talk about repaying the debt without making changes without changing the taxation laws, without discussing the possibility of nationalising this country's resources, without talking about alternative ways of making the investment class pay their fair share of tax. And the list goes on and on. And you will not hear these ideas anywhere else. You will not hear these ideas. So if you are, you know, if you want change, I encourage you to join public interest before corporate interest. I encourage you to join today. You can do it by a number of ways. You can go to our website, pipsy.net, pipsy.net, download the application form, send it in. You can always leave a message at 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. I'll return your call. Or you can always write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can always email us at uh, anarchistage at yahoo.com or info at pipsy.net. As I said before, it's quite extraordinary that we've come to a situation in this country where we face uh, major problems, economic problems, not just because of COVID-19. Let's not forget that. Not just because of COVID-19. All COVID-19 has done is highlight the divisions which exist in this country. It has highlighted how Parliament has been captured by that 1% of society that means the means production, distribution, exchange and communication. It highlights the limited range of ideas that are raised, not just in social media, but in the legacy media. It highlights all these things. And that's why COVID-19 has just exposed the fracture lines. But it also provides an opportunity, an opportunity to, to debate for change and to struggle for change. It provides that opportunity. Now that you're stuck at home, that you're self-isolating, this is an excellent time to think about getting involved because as the COVID-19 threat comes under control and we wait for the next pandemic and there will be another pandemic and it won't be in 100 years' time because social conditions have changed, increasing urbanisation, increasing CO2 emissions, increasing uh, reduction of the natural environment, the list goes on and on, we will see future pandemics and they may be more dangerous than COVID-19 has ever been. So now's the time that we need to grapple with the situation because if we don't grapple with the situation today, what will happen is things will get worse 
and we will find ourselves in a position of no return. See, the great thing about capitalism, private investment for private profit, it doesn't have a conscience. It's not based on moral or moral... You know, people talk about green capitalism. They talk about ethical capitalism. Capitalism is capitalism. It's private investment for private profit. It's a very simple concept. And the only thing a company or an institution needs to do is to create profits. If they don't create profits, they go bankrupt. It's that simple. That's what capitalism is about, creating profits. It's not about cooperation. It's about competition. And it's not even about competition. It's about corporatisation. We like to think capitalism is about competition, but there is no competition in capitalism. That's why we have a... Australian, Australian Consumer and Competitive Commission, whatever it's called, in order to ensure that large corporations uh, compete. And they don't compete because we don't have any trust laws in this country. It means that corporations get bigger and bigger and bigger at the expense of small business. And I find it extraordinary that so many small business people in this country, and many of them now face a critical situation. Many will go to the wall over the next uh, few months, over the next six months. So many of the thinking of small business people is the fact that they are part and parcel of this capitalist society, that they think that somehow they can compete with the corporate sector. Well, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. And the sooner small business people realise, especially those that don't employ labour, especially micro-businesses realise they're just part and parcel of the, the working population, the sooner we may have change in this country. All right, let's move on. But again, as I said, it's up to you. You uh, Ultimately, it's up to you. I, I can talk about things. I can help to organise things. I can do my best, but at the end of the day, I'm just one individual. And one thing I learned a long time ago is one person doesn't get far. You may be able to initiate some ideas, initiate a little bit of change, but if you want real change, if you want lasting change, if you want permanent change, we need to come together as a, in an organisational capacity in order to face the demons which we currently face. Now, there is comedy. That's what I like about uh, the anarchist world this week. Uh, there is comedy in the world today, and uh, Australia is a uh, storehouse of comedy. <laughs> the Environment Protection Act. You heard about the Environment Protection Act? Well, I think uh, a gentleman, I think, it was, I think it was Mr Samuel, has conducted a investigation of the current uh, National Environment Protection Act and he came up with something that we all know. It's ineffective and not fit for purpose. You like that, ineffective and not fit for purpose. That's the Environment Protection Act. And the federal government uh, conducted an investigation of the Environment Protection Act to protect its uh, business and corporate makes. It knew that the Environment Protection Act, you know, was acting as a bit of an impediment to the exploitation of uh, resources in this country. It felt that they needed to have a little investigation to show that the, the current one is ineffective and not fit for the purpose. Now, I was listening to Madam Lee, who I think is the Environment Minister, uh, discuss this. 
and uh, Mr Samuels, he made a very important statement. He said that he would like to see whatever was set up to replace the Environment Protection Act to be an independent arbitrator to determine what was happening. And uh, the environments have said, nope, nope, we'll do it internally. But what I found really fascinating is, now the Environment Protection Act is a national act. Now what the federal government wants to do to help its mates in the resources industry and the agri-business, it wants to devolve power to the states. It wants the states to introduce their own legislation regarding environment protection under so-called national guidelines which don't exist. So here we have 20 to 30 years of struggle creating protections for the environment which have been bundled up into some type of legal nightmare for a lot of people and they said ineffective and not fit the purpose. So instead of reforming the situation and uh, affirming the power of the Environment Protection Act by extending the Act to protect our environment, which is exceptionally important in an era of uh, increasing CO2 emissions, what we have here is a federal government which is going to do everything in its power to destroy those protections. They call it green tape. They're going to cut through the green tape. They're going to go down that deregulation path. They're going to allow people to self-regulate. And we see what happens when people self-regulate, especially in the corporate sector. As I said before, their only, only mission statement is very simple. Increasing profits for their owners and their major shareholders, irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. Let's not forget national costs. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. That's what the destruction of the Environment Protection Act is. Obviously, the environment, current Environment Protection Act has certain... Uh, shortcoming, and we know it has shortcomings, but there is nothing to say that it cannot be improved. Why should protection be devolved to the states? So we've seen many states do everything they can to destroy as much of the environment as possible and expand the uh, corporate agribusiness sector. I don't call it the farming sector. It's an agribusiness sector. People talk about small farmers, small business, and we're supposed to cry tears. The fact is, there are a few small... There are some small farms, there's some small businesses, but they only account for about 10 to 20% of the activity in those sectors. Most of those sectors are dominated by huge corporations, some locally owned, some overseas owned, and they dominate every day activity in those sectors. And every time we see regulations put in place, laws passed by federal parliament, all we are seeing is them getting more and more power and more and more wealth at the expense of the community. Now, you may think I'm exaggerating. Well, 
check it out for yourself. Check it out for yourself. And you will find that the Environment Protection Act, although it was ineffective and not fit for purpose, it did act as a handbrake in a lot of so-called development in this country, which was not development for uh, the national good, the development uh, which creates a lot of problems for a lot of local people. And uh, the changes that are being proposed are not fit for purpose. They're very effective because they will roll back any of the uh, green protection that, uh, regulations that we had in place, but it's not fit for purpose as far as the environment is concerned. There's a lot of things happening, as I said before, in the world today. COVID-19, spread, how it's contained, the effect it's having on the environment, the effect that it's having on people, the effect it's having on the country, the the fact that COVID-19 has highlighted all those fracture lines that existed in society. And instead of finding a new direction, we're going backwards. We're going to go backwards to the good old days of, you know, blaming the unemployed, marginalising those people on Social Security benefits, going back to the good old days. I mean, we need everybody to work together currently, but as soon as the COVID-19 crisis is uh, under wraps, we go back to the good old days, don't we? The good old days of making a buck irrespective of the human, social, environmental and uh, national costs. The good old days of removing regulations which were put in place through the efforts of generations of people who struggled to put those regulations in place to protect the community. The good old days where the gap between the rich and poor continues to increase. The good old days where Parliament has become little more than a rubber stamp for uh, those that currently exercise power and hold wealth in this country. So if you want the good old days to return, turn on the TV, you know, go to social media, you know, enjoy yourselves. If you want the good old days. If you don't want the good old days to return, it's time to think about getting involved in activity. If you're not interested in what I have to put in forward, like joining public interest before corporate interest, don't worry about it. Do something yourself. Organise something yourself because if we don't organise, if we don't take the time to raise new ideas, if we don't take the time to challenge the status quo, all we'll have for the future is the good old days. And uh, the last thing I want is the good old days. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. Go to my Facebook page, Toscana for the Public, YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Web pages are pipsy.net, anarchistage at yahoo.com. The list goes on and on. Listen to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events.
wash mine. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.